0: Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of The Lighter Side of Serial Killers right here on the Bastic Media Network. My name is Keith Rovere. I am an author and collector of true crime art and memorabilia. If you follow me on any of the social media pages of mine, you know I have a heart for the lost, a heart for those whom the world deems unlovable. I'm a big advocate for prison rehabilitation, not the punishment minded style prison here in America with this 70% recidivism rate, which means there's a 70% chance they're going to reoffend when they get out of prison within three to five years. In this uh, negative reinforcement, which means punish, punish, take away, take away, uh, more for the positive reinforcement. Uh, for example, like prison facilities in Norway, if you read my story about you, Masaki, the story of you. Uh, I post numerous studies done uh, in prisons across the uh, across our country and across the world, uh, specifically in Norway, when I talked to the warden of Halden Prison, where they have a—well, tw- now it's a 20% recidivism rate. At the time of publishing of the book, it was a 30% recidivism rate. What are they doing differently there that we need to do here? They encourage, they counsel, they rehabilitate. If you're a— Uh, uh, An office guard there, a prison officer, um, does not go through the training like we do here. Yes, there's self-defense. Yes, you know how to uh, firearm and weapons training. But the majority of their training is communication. Imagine that. Uh, Most movies that you've seen are pretty true about inside prison life. Just watch a documentary. Um, They're not building friendships uh, with the inmates. In fact, if you're an inmate here in American prison, you can't even talk to a guard. If you talk to the guard or get a little too friendly, you can be attacked because they're going to think you're a rat, you're a snitch. Now, it, it's, it's another world inside prisons here in America. The last thing to do is rehabilitate you. Now, it's not everyone, of course. There are some like North Dakota. It also has a 30% recidivism rate. Why? Because they went up to Norway. <laughs> they saw how they did it there. But communication, job skill training. In fact, the local businesses visit the facility in Norway. Um, they want to build relationships with them. So when they do get out of prison— um, they have a job. They're already building bridges into this facility, uh, which is just an amazing thing. Um, a lot of prisons uh, here in America visited there. Uh, they thought, oh, it's a great idea. It's too much money. No no, it's too much money is when they get out of prison and they get sent right back in uh, on the state's dime. Now, I'm not talking about privately owned prisons, where it's all about making money. The last thing I want to do is uh, re- rehabilitate you because they go broke. <laughs> the purpose of a business is to make money. Uh, but yeah, we can read about more about that in my in the book, my book, the story of you, uh, not just about you, Masaki, but about all this that we're talking about. But today, today is a different day. We are going to be talking to somebody I've known for a long time, Wild Bill Hulbert. William Holbert. Um, He is in a Panamanian prison. He is a former hitman, a cartel hitman. Um, so as we start the interview today, uh, let's ask Wild Bill to introduce himself tell us a little bit about what he did to get himself there and what facility one of the worst facilities in the world where is he currently incarcerated at
1: all right so hi this is me I'm wild bill i'm brother wild bill i'm coming to you from inside the most dangerous prison in central america and that prison is called the la jolla complex there are three prisons here there's 15 14,000 inmates in the prison. I'm the chaplain of one of the sectors, actually the most dangerous and worst sector of that prison. Who am I? I'm William Dathan Halbert. I was raised in Western North Carolina in a very Southern area of, you know, old time Southern area of of North Carolina. I am, am serving 46 years and five months for quintuple homicide. Um, You can hear the racket in the background. I'm inside right now, the worst prison Um, I'm in Central America, as I already mentioned, I'm 12 years and six months in on that sentence. It's a, like I say, it's a 46-year sentence. Um, And I was a cartel hitman and professional killer uh, from the year 2006 until 2010. I'm 43 years old, recently divorced, and I have four children.
0: Now, obviously, we've known each other for a few years, Uh, so your name's come up a a lot over the years. the, the question people ask me the most about you is how you got the name Wild Bill. I mean, some people think oh, it's because the, uh, the number of people that you kill or maybe the way that you did it, um, and I, I know the answer to this, um, but how did you specifically get the name Wild
1: Bill? Now, that's a funny story, actually. I, uh, I was a madman, obviously, in the street. I did all kind of crazy stuff when I was a little free, and not only was I a contract killer, but, I mean, I was just a nut. And I built a mansion on the water in Bocas del Toro, which is a province of the Republic of Panama. It's a Caribbean province on the Caribbean Sea. And through a lot of finagling, a man owed me money and he couldn't pay it. And one of the ways he elected to pay was to give me, a part of that debt, he paid me with a, with a Cessna seaplane. It actually wasn't a seaplane, it was just an old Cessna, I think a 152, I think is what it was. It's an old ass airplane that had had a couple of pontoons fitted on it. So I had it there at the house for a little while and a friend of mine named Danny came and put it all together and And we had a big party at my home one night and uh, I had been there about three weeks floating on the dock and one of my friends at the party told me, said, hey, I can't believe that you've had that thing sitting there for three weeks and you haven't tried to fly it and what I was waiting on was a guy that I know to come and show me how to fly. I had flown uh, some when I was 16 years old because I had a friend of mine when I was 16 years old who had uh, a pilot's license, a private pilot's license when we were 16. We used to take girls from, like, Alabama and places like that, which were seemed exotic to us <laughs> in western North Carolina. <laughs> Alabama is exotic, right? but, I mean, it was for us, you know. And so I had flown, but I'd never landed. I'd taken off and flown, but I had never landed. And so I was drunk, and he got started giving me shit. So he gives me shit for a long period of time. And I said, you know what? You want to see an And so I let's go do it. And so I, I, I grabbed the the keys off the dash, and everybody laughed, they thought I was just joking. I walked down to the dock, I got in the machine, fired it up, primed it, fired it up, and off we went. Everybody came running out the dock. I mean, there was like 100 people at my house, literally, like 100, like 90 people. They all come out in the yard to watch me kill myself, and everybody's trying to stop me, you know, or at least per- pretending to try to stop me. So off we go, and, and my home was on a cove. It was boat access, so it was on an island, and it was on a cove in that island called Cutthroat Cove, I named it that, and and it was a really calm coat, but there were two mangrove islands there in the front, about a mile out. So my idea was to go out, fly around, bank, left, fly fly around the mangrove islands, and come back and and land. All that went well. I went out, flew around, drunk. I would drank, I don't know, a liter of vodka by now. And uh, I went out, flew around the islands, and I came back. Now, when I came back to land, everybody was cheering, you know, and, and I could see them. They were like a half mile off, and I, as I settled into the water, I wasn't prepared for how much drag the pontoons were going to have versus like tires on asphalt doesn't doesn't have much drag, but that pontoons on water creates a lot of drag. And when they touched, I touched really hard, and the nose of the plane dipped down, and I pulled the yoke back to try to correct. And and what happened was a wily e. coyote type scenario in which the airplane. Jump, twang, 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 twang across the water, and everybody was like, "Oh my God!" Anyway, and so, but I did. I landed it, and I came back to the dock, and I got out of the out of the plane, I killed the engine, got out of the plane, tied the plane up, and I presented myself to my cheering crowd, my adoring fans, and my friend said, "That's our Bill. That's our Wild Bill." So that's how I got that name. It was my first my my first solo flight, and I uh, never had any flight training at all. Now, this show is obviously the lighter side of serial killers. But every article that I've read
0: about you, um, or a YouTube documentary, it always labels you as a serial killer. Um, you know, I'm not quite sure I would label you as a serial killer. Um, but how? How actually would you label? Let me ask you this: How would you label yourself?
1: Well, I'm a hitman. I was a hitman. I was a, an asshole. Well, certainly, an asshole. I was an asshole, but. I don't think I'm a serial killer. I, I d- certainly don't have any desire to kill anybody. I you know I don't like sit around missing killing people or anything like that. I don't have any bloodlust. Um, i I did a lot of freelance killing as well. When I say freelance, I mean I used to hunt fugitives and and like just absorb everything that they owned, like other fugitives, I was a fugitive myself. And uh, I don't defend any of those actions. Those are horrible, terrible things I did. I killed people that you're not supposed to do that. Um, And uh, but I I did it to fuel that insane millionaire lifestyle that I had, not because I had some desire to kill people. And this is a really ugly thing I'm going to say, but it's the thing I say all the time. It's as if I brought you a piece of human shit on a plate and I present you with that piece of human shit. And I say to you, if you'll eat this piece of human shit, I'll give you $800 million. Well, you'll eat the shit, won't you? Because you want the $800 million. But that doesn't mean you like to eat shit. You know, it's not like you eat shit for free. And so that's the same thing. I was a contract killer. I killed people for money, not because of pleasure. I didn't enjoy it. And I actually knew people in that line of work that did enjoy killing people, but that's not my motif.
0: One thing I don't think I've ever asked you before, we talked about, um, the first one, you know, the first kill, if you will, um, how did you handle that? Or how did you deal with that? Or how did you feel emotionally or mentally after the first one?
1: The first one I, first person I ever killed was on accident. I didn't do it on purpose. I was defending myself. From a man who was trying to kill me, who we were both involved in the same criminal enterprise, and we'd got into a fisticuff and into a fight. And I ended up killing him, bashing him in the head, actually. And I was horrified. I was horrified when I did it. I, I actually did have guilt some and and um
0: did it get easier uh each time?
1: No, actually I don't think so. I think my conscience bothered me less, but I was always nervous to do a job. I, it was always something I wanted was well, something unpleasant to do. I didn't enjoy it at all. I think if you enjoy killing people, you're sick and something's wrong with you. Um but I I, I didn't enjoy it. I, it was a very... After I killed someone, I always felt like a relief. I like, oh, thank God that that's over. You know, at least for a little while, I don't have to do that again.
0: Well, sure. I mean, I can't even imagine. Um, and, and also, thanks for sharing. Um, obviously, there's a lot of personal stuff here, so we appreciate that. Um, and also, thanks for sharing a book, uh, which I personally got a little shout-out in, so I thank you very much for that. Uh, Long Live the King, Wild Bill, uh, where the villain is the hero. Uh Tell us a little bit about the book.
1: I wrote a book called "Long Live the King," and this book was like six years in the making. I wrote a little bit here, a little bit there, and it's not my best writing work. Although people have given it great claims for someone who's not a writer, actually, I've heard I've had a lot of people tell me, like, God, I can't. I would have think that's what the only thing that you do." And so that's like gratifying to me. But the book was written from maybe two thousand fourteen until two thousand twenty one, and I I wrote it about. I didn't want to write about my crimes. I never will. I'm not ever going to do that. That seems wrong to me, writing about that stuff. Not only that, I I had a lot of other people involved, and I'm not a rat, and so I never ratted on anybody. So I didn't didn't do that. What I did is I wrote a, a book about what my life was like when I found out. From the time I found out that I was wanted, I ran. I found a flight from Justice. I ran away and went across three countries and anyway and finally got arrested. I wrote about that, how it felt, what I did, things I did. And then I wrote about being shipped back to Panama as like a wild animal and like presented to the press and doing the perp walk and off the plane and all the, you know, the whole world, literally BBC, ABC, NBC, CNN, Teletico, Telemetro, every, you know, big news media in America and Latin America and in Europe was there. and so how that felt and what all that went with that. And then the, my first year in prison and my dealings with the insane corrupt authorities of the Republic of Panama. Uh, all re- that's what it's all about, really. And and um, I I think it's a good story because I think I'm the only person in the whole world in the history of the human race that's lived what I've lived. Really, I don't think anybody else has ever lived. If you read the book, I think you'll understand it. Everybody likes it. It hasn't sold as well as I'd like, just because I don't know how to I've not been able to um, publicize it. I don't have any money, you know, and so, and so, but I thought, I'll tell you something else, and this is kind of going off cue, but I want people to listen to this. Like the true crime community is disappointing to me. I, I was disappointed in some, and I'm not cursing anybody that's listening. Thank you for listening to me. I need the attention. I'm thankful for it. But the True Come community has been dis- disappointing to me because I, you have people who spend day and night worshiping serial killers, want to know everything about them, um, thinking about them, writing books about them. And then when they have the opportunity to speak to me in person, which is, you know, I think I'm probably maybe the only one, only person in my position in the whole world you can actually come and talk to. You know, you can, anybody can talk to me. I'm on Instagram at, at holinessbill. Holiness Bill. You want to talk to me, Come on to Instagram and talk to me. You can see videos of what I'm doing and stuff, I mean, like, but anybody who, like like at least half of the people are very rude and very judgmental and. I'm like, what the hell? You spend all your time worshiping murderers and criminals and all kinds of, stuff, and then you have the opportunity to speak to one, and you're rude. I don't understand that. And I still don't understand that. Um, like, I, had, I have heroes, too, and they're not criminals, and I, if I ever had the chance to speak to them, I certainly wouldn't be rude to them. And maybe I'm not a hero. I, I understand that, and I shouldn't be a hero, actually. But, but I'm at least trying to change and, and be a better person, and you'd think that people would be supportive of that, and they haven't been. No, Well, some, some are. I've got some of the best friends in the world. Don't get me wrong, but there's a huge faction of the true crime community that seems to be a very low self-esteem group. And that's probably not you who are listening. And I'm not not—I'm certainly not getting down on anybody. I'm just telling you about my experiences.
0: I would definitely encourage everybody to hop over to Amazon uh, and buy a copy of Long Live the King, Wild Bill, where the hero is the villain. Uh, I was lucky enough to get a copy before it was uh, out there as I kind of helped publish the book and uh, get it edited uh, for Wild Bill. Um, but I do have a favorite story. And the story about the uh, the internet cafe. So, if you would be so kind, just to share a little bit about my favorite story.
1: Yes, I am going to share that story. All right. So, I'm gonna. I went. I was on the run, and I knew that they were looking for me. And I had ran from Costa Rica, and I, now I was in. Uh, I, I had ran from Panama, and now I was in Costa Rica. And I was in this little mountain town, really quaint little mountain town, and. Uh, and the town was like, I may have four or five hundred people, and it was a beautiful little town, right on the right on Lake Arinol, which has an active volcano that at night it explodes, and you could see it in the sky. It's really incredible. It's really, one of the most incredible places in the world. If you ever get a chance to go there, you should go. It'd be a great place to honeymoon. Uh, and there's a little town called La Fortuna, La Fortuna, there that's just perfect for like a honeymoon or something. It's like a little tiny resort town in the mountains. You know, it's got all kind of, it's got all the normal shit, riding motorcycles and riding, riding four wheelers and horses and what you know all that sort of stuff. Anyway. So I was in this little town and I, this was like, you know, 2010 and the internet wasn't as prevalent as it is now. It wasn't like you had a cell phone, you know, nobody, I didn't have a Blackberry or anything. That was Blackberry time and I didn't have one, didn't even know how that worked yet. So I would go every day and take my laptop and I would go every day and go down to the the internet cafe. And this particular day, a lot of times I didn't take my laptop and I would just go and use the computer to check my email. And I didn't realize the, the federal government could check me, could track me by my email and I'm, apparently that happened. I'm, I'm, apparently the Americans found out that every single day or like, like three days a week this guy's going here and he's checking his email. So or this email's being checked in this place three times a week. So I'm in the email cafe, in the internet cafe, I didn't bring my computer with me this day. I'm in the, the, the internet cafe and I walked there from the little house that I had rented and there's this guy comes. In, this guy walks in. American. Now that's strange. First of all, there'd be American there. He walks in, and he's like immediately. That's a cop. I mean, just looking at him, I knew he was a cop. And I mean, just the way his hair, the way he dressed, the way his pants were perfectly pressed, and his and his shirt was tucked into his pants, and he was trying to be all like cool. But I mean, like I'm in the place, and there's one little girl, and the other area there who can playing a video game on another computer way far away from me. And this guy comes and sets right beside me. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, shit, 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 oh. you know, and he says, how's it going? I said, good. He says, where are you from? I said, my mother's womb, I'll never forget saying that. I don't even know where that came from. I said, I'm from my mother's womb. And he says, ha, 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 and I got up and I walked to the bathroom. I said, be right back. And I walked to the bathroom and I opened the window and I jumped out the window of the bathroom, but it was a second story window. And so when I landed, I hurt my ankle and I ran around up behind some pine trees there and I just sat down and waited. And in Costa Rica is a tiny little, the roads are tiny little things and everybody drives like a Hyundai or a Toyota, and little bitty tiny little car and out of nowhere it drives up this huge chevrolet caprice it's got to be the only chevrolet caprice in the whole country for sure it's like a tank you know it pulls up outside and i'm like holy shit they are, it's the federales you know the american the feds it's the fbi so the the agent or whatever walks the, the, he thinks he's a secret agent. He's like an idiot, a bumbling fool. That St- goes out of the place and stops and talks to another guy in the car who looks exactly like him. They're like twins. And the guy in the car screams at him and he screams back and he gets in the car and they drive away. And I'm like, oh shit, you know, I gotta go. And so I did. I, I flee. I flew. I, anyway, I escaped them. That's the story.
0: Can you also talk a little bit about your facility as far as medical care goes? As far as running water goes, uh, as far as plumbing goes there. Um, can you break that down a little bit for everybody on what conditions that you have to live with regarding medical care? Ba- I'm just talking about basic things, running water, plumbing, and medical care.
1: Well, medical care is non-existent where I am. It's not, you're not allowed to have medical care. If you get sick, you die. If you have an aneurysm, if you have an appendix burst... If you have cancer, if you have a heart attack, if you have a stroke, you fucking die. Forgive my language, but that's how it is. That's what happens here. So there's none. Um, not all Panamanian prisons are like that, uh, but the one where I am is that way. Running water. I have water three hours in the morning and 45 minutes in the afternoon of running water. That's it. Uh, one luxury of the place where I am. I am in my own cell. I have my very own cell, which is nice. And I recently got a job. I'm, I'm working now. Um, I am also the pastor of the church here on the inside. And I am the mediator between the gangs. So I'm a really busy guy, for sure. But the, this facility's terrible. The prisoners have firearms here, literally. Yeah, you heard me. The prisoners have guns on the inside, AK-47s. In nineteen, in 2019, in 2019 at Christmas, there was a massacre. I wrote, I'm writing a new book, uh, should be available in February, called Concentration Camp 2000, that deals directly with um, that I'm telling, the, the only the only time it's ever been told, the story's ever been told, the New York Times picked the story up, but they didn't tell the story. And I researched it, talked to everybody that was involved in it, and I've got the story here how 15, 15 men were killed in a gun battle you know, an assault rifle gun battle inside prison, prisoner on prisoner. So that gives you a little info, a little idea of how things are here. This is a concentration camp. It's not a, it's not a prison. There's no death camp. It's not a death camp. It's a concentration camp. Meaning they just throw everybody in here, and then they put cops on the outside, and if you cross the line, they shoot you. That's prison here. You know, there isn't a whole lot of real organization to it.
0: I mean, this is a, a silly question, but why are there firearms <laughs> in your facility that do not belong to the security there?
1: Why are there firearms inside a Panamanian prison? One of the reasons that there are firearms in a Panamanian prison is because the police control the drug trade. How do they do that? There are there are violent street gangs that have been put in prison. These violent street gang gangs make a deal with the cops to sell cocaine on the inside of the prison. So the cops, when they confiscate cocaine, they bring a little bit here, You know, let's say they confiscate 50 kilos, they bring 20 kilos here and dump them on the gangs. And they dump also, they also dump the guns that they find, the illegal guns that they find on the street here so that the, the street gangs can protect the cocaine that the cops give them to it. This seems insane, but it's absolutely the truth. And a little bit of research, you can find that it's that way. And that's how Panamanian prisons are ran. And that's why there are firearms on the inside.
0: Now, you always read about you know Americans getting locked up abroad. I think there's even a TV show called Locked Up Abroad uh, and how they treat Americans there. Um, so what was your experience like when you first got there? Uh, how were you treated there? Um, obviously, you got a, tons of uh, news coverage. Did they know who you were, too? And, uh, and how were you uh, received?
1: Yeah, everybody knew who I was. I was huge. I was like, I don't know, it was like Ted Bundy in the street or Charles Manson or something. I mean, I was n- enormous, you know, or... Or, or who was that guy? Anyway, I'm, I'm, i was huge when I got, and but everybody accepted me really well. Everybody wanted to be my friend, and you know, I think uh, the prisoners. I haven't had any problem with the prisoners at all. And like the whole thing, like in the in the states, United States, like everything's segregated by race. There's no racism here, like none. That's a concept that's manufactured by the United States government that doesn't exist here. Um And that, and coming to Panama is, is that in one way it's very liberating in that fact. I mean, like I'm in a place right now where there's only two white guys, like American white guys, what you call a white guy, and there's 157 of us, and there's two white guys, and I don't feel even a remotely, uh, you know, looked down on or. You know, and like all my friends, all my friends are very, very, like we sit at a table, there's two or three black guys from the Caribbean. There's, you know, Latino guys of different shades, an Indian guy. So, I mean, it's not, it's is not something we even think about. So that's one thing that's cool here.
0: Now, we talked about this uh, a few times before, but I think like Panamanian law says you can only serve a specific amount of time and no more. Um, but for what you told me, you're serving over and above What's allowed by law there? Um, And I think you're working on an appealer about that, too. Your lawyer was uh, trying to appeal that. How is that? First of all, how? (laughs) How is that possible? And how is the appeal working out?
1: I lost my appeal, by the way. I don't know if everybody knew that, but I lost my appeal. I'm stuck with a a 46-and-a-half-year sentence. So I'm trying to figure out what to do about that right now. Um, You know, that's just an incredibly long sentence for a Panamanian prison. So... I'm trying to figure out what to do by that. It's not legal, but the law here doesn't work. And so I'm talking, I'm waiting on the embassy to come and see me again, which they finally started talking to me again. The American embassy hates me. I mean, like, that's funny though, they didn't. When Obama was in president, when, when Obama, I'm not political. I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican. I don't care. I don't, those things, like po- American politics seem pedantic and ridiculous to me now that I'm outside of America. Um, but I'll tell you the truth. When Obama was president, The embassy was so helpful to me. And then when Trump took over, the embassy became like Nazis. They hated prisoners and they stopped visiting us all together for three years. They said it was for COVID, but that's bullshit. They stopped visiting. Everybody else's embassy visited them, but the American embassy decided to stop helping prisoners. And then now, like six months ago, there's a new president, Biden or whatever. they started, they visited me about six months ago and gave me some information and I'm waiting on them to come back and see what we can do about trying to get me out of prison because I should be free. And like by law, I should be free in three or four years because in Panama, you only do 20, you only do 66% of your time. And, and that would be 13 years on a 20 year sentence is what I should do, which like next year should put me free, but it didn't work out that way, even though it should have legally.
0: Well, I'm sure when things like this come up, uh... Uh, your faith obviously uh, gets you through those, not just the normal hard times of being in that prison, but uh, dealing with all the legal issues also. Uh, and speaking of faith, we've spoken privately about, it, and obviously publicly, you, you talk about your conversion to Christianity. So you can tell us a little bit about the role of faith in your life?
1: My faith plays my, the central role of my life. I love Jesus Christ, and I teach what Jesus Christ told us. I'm on my arm here, tattooed, uh, San Juan quince 17 which means John fifteen seventeen, which says only one commandment do I give you that you love each other. Love uh, aman, aman uno al otro. And that's what it says in Spanish. And you, that you love each other. You love one another. So that's what we do here. And and we have a church that has twenty two people, twenty two members. Uh, we had church service today at ten o'clock in the morning. Really excited about it. Also believe very much in the law of attraction. Um, that. The, the things that you think about and the things that you concentrate on happen. And and so you have to be really careful what you think about.
0: Now, one thing I know you've been thinking about is the new book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the new book uh, and when can we expect it to be
1: released? Concentration Camp 2000 is a book that I wrote. Uh, it's, it's completely finished now. It, it went to the editor like a couple of days ago. Um, yeah. It's a book about there's three there's three different topics in the book. The first is the massacre that occurred here, where 15 were killed in 2019. The second is Sector C, where I am, what that means and how Panama has a soft torture facility that the United States and Great Britain use to coerce people into cooperating with them and what that's about. Um, And then certain amount uh, wisdom from hell, uh, wisdom from inside hell is also on there, and that's the things I learned being under extreme duress and terrible conditions. So those are the three parts of the book. I'm excited about it it's coming out. It should be out in February, end of February. You guys pick it up.
0: Well, there you have it, my interview with Wild Bill Halbert from a Panamanian prison. Uh, I would encourage all of you to hop over to Amazon, uh, pick up a copy of his book, Long Live the King, Wild Bill, where the hero is the villain. Uh, more details about his new book uh, once it gets released. Well, I'm sure we'll have Wild Bill on again to talk more details about that. He is not short of good stories. (laughs) We'll definitely have more to talk to him. Uh, Go check out his social media pages. Uh, The ones he mentioned, go check him out there. Say hello. He's very accessible. Tell him you... uh, Heard the interview here on the lighter side of Serial Killers. we got a lot more coming up for you. Thanks again for all the support, all the comments. Uh, We're just getting started. Make sure you share this with your friends. Give them a heads up. Every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, a new episode will be up. Sometimes it takes about 6.30 for Spotify, but we release it at 6. Our podcast pick it up, all the major platforms. So thanks again, everybody. We appreciate it. And until next time, see ya.